Hello, this is Anthony Day with the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 19th of October. Welcome and thank you all for listening. A special thank you to my patrons whose support helps to make this possible. Thank you for your support and thank you for your ideas. If you'd like to join their number and become a patron, pop across to patreon.com slash sfr, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n, dot com slash sfr, where you'll find all the details. The big story this week is the IPCC report. Yes, I know it came out two weeks ago, but there was an awful lot to read. Uh, One of the recommendations is the use of carbon capture and storage, and this week we have an interview with Professor John Lewis of Durham University, who is an expert in this field. In this episode, I also comment on a number of the government's green policies. I talk about energy, I look into a smart sewer, and I can tell you where to park your car for the price of a few plastic bottles. An IPCC special report on the impacts of global warming of 1.5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels has made a lot of headlines in the last couple of weeks. The report was created by a team of international scientists. Many reports start with an executive summary which runs to one or two pages. This report comes with a completely separate summary for policymakers which runs to 33 pages. It is meticulously cross-referenced to the relevant sections of the full report. The report talks about the dangers resulting from a global temperature rise of 1.5 degrees centigrade, but it spends a lot of time talking about how much worse things will be if the rise reaches 2 degrees. It warns that warming from anthropogenic emissions from the pre-industrial period to the present will persist for centuries to millennia, and will continue to cause further long-term changes in the climate system, such as sea level rise, with associated impacts. I quote, Future climate-related risks depend on the rate, peak and duration of warming. In the aggregate, they are larger if global warming exceeds 1.5 degrees centigrade before returning to that level by 2100, than if global warming gradually stabilises at 1.5 degrees centigrade, especially if the peak temperature is high, for example, above 2 degrees centigrade. Some impacts may be long-lasting or irreversible, such as the loss of some ecosystems. These impacts will be both on the natural world and on humanity. Rising temperatures are expected to lead to the increased frequency and intensity of precipitation and of droughts, with some areas being at greater risk than others. If temperatures rise by 2 degrees, sea levels will rise significantly more than if the rise is held to 1.5 degrees, but in either case sea levels will continue to rise beyond 2100. The actual magnitude and rate depends on emissions now, and a slower rise gives greater opportunities for adaptation. Instability of the marine ice sheet in Antarctica or the irreversible loss of Greenland ice could lead in the very long term to metre level rises. Theoretically, this could be triggered if global temperatures rise towards a 2 degree increase. At 1.5 degrees, a sea ice free summer 
could be expected in the Arctic every 100 years. A two-degree rise makes this likely every 10 years. The changing climate will affect all insects, plants and invertebrates, and some may lose 50% or more of their geographic range. Again, a two-degree rise makes things even worse, including a greater occurrence of forest fires. Global warming risks thawing the permafrost, releasing methane, which is a significantly more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. Global warming affects the oceans, causing acidification. The range of marine species will shift, and coral and fisheries, particularly in low latitudes, will become depleted. Agricultural yields will fall, both from cereals and from livestock. This will lead to higher costs of food for some and increased poverty for others, particularly in developing countries and marginal lands. The concept of the carbon budget has been around for a while. The theory is that we have only so much more CO2 that we can emit into the atmosphere before we pass the point of no return, in terms of triggering catastrophic climate change. The report addresses this issue, but cautions that the exact limit depends on measurement methodology. In turn, that means the choice of temperature measurement, the prediction of the incremental effects of additional CO2 in the atmosphere, and the behaviour of permafrost and wetlands as they release their sequestered CO2 and methane as the planet warms. If we are to limit global warming to an increase of 1.5 degrees centigrade, there remain between 420 and 770 gigatons of CO2 left to emit before we reach a tipping point. If we divide those figures by the current annual global emissions of 42 gigatons, then the best case is that we have less than 20 years left, and the worst case is only 10 even that may be an unsafe conclusion, as on present rising trends, annual usage by 2030 could have risen to 58 gigatons, as opposed to 42. The report presents a number of strategies for addressing the carbon emissions problem. They all involve carbon dioxide removal, CDR, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, BECCS, and agricultural, forestry and other land use changes, AFOLU. They all involve lower energy demand. There is no doubt of the seriousness of the message. I quote, Pathways limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C with no or limited overshoot would require rapid and far-reaching transitions in energy, land, urban and infrastructure, including transport and buildings, and industrial systems. These systems transitions are unprecedented in terms of scale, but not necessarily in terms of speed, and imply deep emissions reductions in all sectors, a wide portfolio of mitigation options, and a significant upscaling of investments in those options. One of these options, as I've mentioned, is carbon capture and storage. Professor John Glewis of Durham University is Dean of Knowledge Exchange, Director of the Durham Energy Institute, and holds the Ersted Icon Chair in Geoenergy. Here's what he told me. We've been talking about the IPCC report and that's made a big issue about the fact that we have to cut emissions. We have to cut emissions dramatically because although uh, an awful lot of countries agreed to cut their emissions under the Paris Agreement in 2015, 
it's generally accepted that whatever they do will not prevent global warming by up to three degrees. The target was two degrees. The IPCC now says 1.5 has got to be the absolute limit. So we've got to look at ways at cutting emissions in order to prevent runaway global warming and climate change. We can cut down our emissions by burning less fossil fuels and things like that. We can perhaps go for carbon dioxide removal, but that seems quite a a wacky and complex issue. But carbon capture and storage has been around for a long time, and I know you're a specialist in this. So can you first of all explain to us what it is and how we'd use it? Okay, so carbon capture and storage, as you say, has been around uh, for some while, effectively uh, been used since the 1970s in parts of the USA, uh, principally for injecting into oil reservoirs and uh, re-energizing them. Uh, the CO2 is cycled. So we know the, the process quite well. In terms of uh, capturing the CO2, compressing it, transporting it, and injecting it, though, there's very little which has been done from the point of view of reducing the amount of total emissions that goes into the atmosphere. So we know the technology, it's just not been applied at scale. We can think of it, as I said, in about three component parts. Capture, uh, uh, compression and and transportation, and uh, finally storage. Let's start with easy bits in a way. Um, We can inject CO2 into the subsurface, into depleted oil and gas fields where there's pressure space, or even into deep saline aquifers. These are aquifers not connected to the Earth's surface. Uh, If we drill deep in the Earth uh, anyway, you'll find that most of uh, the intervals which are porous, like sands or limestones, contain saline water. It's not connected to the Earth's surface, but it is a huge reservoir, and injecting CO2 into that, the CO2 will eventually dissolve and is essentially locked away safe forever. The same would be true of putting CO2 as a dense phase fluid, that's a liquid or a fluid rather than a gas, into depleted oil and gas fields. The compression step and transportation are also very well established insofar as um, uh, whether it be for um, uh, use of CO2 in industry um, or use particularly with regard to the uh, enhanced oil recovery, which is done in the USA, we move it around in pipelines, in tankers, uh, in a compressed state fairly readily. And it's unlike uh, some of the... uh, uh, gases which you use for burning, like methane or what have you, it's not explosive as such. Yes, un- any gas under pressure is under pressure, but it doesn't have the same explosive qualities that um, some other gases have. The first bit, though, uh, of the process, that of capture, is the element which proves to be the most uh, costly at the moment and uh, the most difficult. And that's because uh, when we produce CO2 from burning fossil fuels, we tend to produce it as a flue gas. So a coal-fired power station or a gas-fired power station will burn the fuel and up the chimney goes, dilute CO2 along with uh, recycled air, nitrogen, oxygen, and so on. Um, So it means it's a dilute, um, dispersed gas phase. It's a dilute, uh, uh, low-density gas phase. And so stripping out a few hundred ppm or a few percentage points of CO2 from those flue gases is, as one might imagine, intrinsically quite hard. We have the technology. It's well developed. It uses amines, which are cycled round and heated. So 
So we, we mop up the CO2 from the flue gas at low pressure, warm the amine that releases the CO2 uh, at fairly high pressure, and that can then go off to transportation and ultimate storage. But the point is, we're trying what we're trying to do here is retrofit um, carbon capture to power stations that were never designed, never conceived to have to capture the CO2. However, as those power stations go offline, get old, uh, new generations of power stations can be built under uh, with similar, uh, rather different designs, I should say, which allow you to capture high dense, you know, d dense amounts of uh, CO2 right away. They're known as oxyfuel or pre-combustion, but basically you don't end up uh, diluting all that CO2 with air and then having to extract it again. You go straight for the the jugular, as it were, and take the CO2 out of a, uh, a near pure, pure CO2 form. Now that's a that's, very, well, that's well and good. Yeah, but that, that, it, that, that's a very interesting point because I was talking to a power station engineer a while ago, and I admit it was a, a, an old and well-established power station. He said, "Look, carbon capture and storage—you've got to put energy into actually extracting the carbon dioxide. We've got to put energy into compressing it." compressing it we've got to put energy into pumping it 70 miles to uh, caverns under the north sea and by the time we've done all that the efficiency of the plant is back to where we were in the 1920s now perhaps he was ultimately pessimistic but what you're saying is a newly designed power station can get over most of those problems well indeed and you know he may be slightly pessimistic but not entirely you know if we release co2 to the atmosphere uh, it's gone. We don't have to do it. Ignore, if you will, for a moment, the impact it has on the atmosphere as a whole. It's gone. We don't have to think about it. It's almost like saying um, we're not going to pay for uh, trash collection. Uh, I'm just going to chuck it out the window. Uh, and, but what we recognise is that we don't want rubbish littering our streets, littering our homes, and therefore we pay for a service which is energy inefficient because it picks up our rubbish and takes it away somewhere. You know, it's, it's thinking about this whole systems process. If we don't care about the atmosphere, just let it go up. But he's right. If we, if we install on one of these old power stations carbon capture and storage in, in order to get the same energy out of uh, a ton of coal to do whatever you do with that energy that you release through through power, we're now going to have to burn 1.3 tonnes of coal. Mm. So superficially, in the first instance, it makes uh, life more difficult. That um, inefficiency, if you want to call it, of having to burn more coal to capture all the flue gases and get rid of them uh, is uh, currently 30%. It would drop significantly with new generations of power station, but it will never be zero. We'd have to break the second law of thermodynamics to get away scot-free. So there is always a price for tidying up. We can have more efficient systems, but there will always be a price. And that price key, will, will be paid by the electricity consumer, I suppose. Well, well it, it ultimately, yes. But it, it goes, you know, this, if you look at it, what, only one industry from day one recognised that it had to tidy up after itself, and that was the nuclear industry. Mm. Uh, and you could argue w whether they've been good at it or not so good at it, but it recognised from day one you can't simply let all those radionuclides out into the atmosphere or dump them on the land or in the sea. No. You've got to tidy up. And so uh, the, the whole process is around recognising that there is a consequence to burning 
fossil fuels. And if you don't want to uh, change the atmosphere to the point of a, a you know runaway Earth, you're going to have to tidy up after yourself, and there will be a cost in that. If we look back, uh, probably to the beginning, I think really to the beginning of the oil age rather than the coal age, oil, the discovery of the utility of oil was a phenomenal um, drove the 20th century, a phenomenal rate of change. And the reason for that is that although it's blooming difficult to find oil in the first place, when you find it, it's rather like popping the cork on a champagne bottle or, or flipping the lid on a Coca-Cola bottle. The dissolved gases in the Coca-Cola, the oil or the champagne means it comes out the bottle or out of the well free for nothing. Ultimately, of course, you've got to tip that champagne bottle to get the last uh, champagne out. Uh, and in the same way, you've got to put more energy into oil fields to get even more oil out. But that first flush meant all of a sudden the cost of energy to people globally just collapsed. If you go back two or three generations to my grandparents, they would have had to collect firewood. Bloody hard work to collect firewood. Much easier to flick on the switch and, and have your electric fire powered by coal or gas ultimately or, or gas through pipelines. So despite the fact that there's huge amounts of energy poverty uh, across the world, even in the UK, mm. relative to several generations ago, we get our energy very cheap. We use copious amounts. You know, just driving the internet, I think someone's calculated in the order of uh, approaching 10% of all yeah. the electricity we generate is just keeping the internet going. Yeah. Yeah. And, and video streaming is a, a major part of that. You know, so uh, we are pretty profligate with the energy we use. Um, but it's fundamentally much cheaper than it was just a few generations ago. And that's the hiccup. We don't want to pay for um, energy. Uh, the countries don't want there to be a differential value to energy relative to their neighbours. You know, aeroplanes do not play, uh, or air companies don't pay fuel tax because mm. if you tax fuel in one country, you'll go and fill up somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, so this is the... This is the Rubicon we need to cross as a as a society. Uh, we we've got to recognise that we need to use less energy <coughs> and tidy up. Yeah, and we need to do it quickly, of course. But going back, to we carbon... need to do it very quickly. And the uh, and CCS is just a transition technology. It's a it's a easy fix so that we don't have to go cold turkey and stop using oil like that. Right, but how? Um, but where is carbon capture and storage in the scheme of things at the moment? Now, a few years ago, the government pushed a, promised a vast amount of money behind it, and only a few months after that, they cancelled it. As far as I know, carbon capture and storage is not implemented on a commercial scale anywhere in the UK. I may be wrong, but we're going to need to do that with every power station if we are actually going to cut our emissions, aren't we? Is that likely That's to happen? Yes, yeah, you you're it's spot on. Uh, it's not done at a commercial scale. Well, it's not done anywhere now in the UK. We got very close to within, you know, 95, 90% uh, completion of doing it in 2015. Uh, companies like National Grid Carbon had drilled a dedicated well in the North Sea and done preliminary tests, and that would have stored modest amounts, but it would have been a start to store a couple of million tonnes per year. Mm. And in uh, November of 2015, hidden away in the comprehensive spending review, the then Chancellor uh, George Osborne pulled the plug on that funding. The funding was about a billion pounds. Mm. Uh, the excuse was it was too expensive, but you don't fund uh, demonstration projects to reduce costs. You fund 
demonstration projects to reduce risk. And your first of a kind was always going to be more difficult than second generation or what have you. So it really was a very short-sighted piece. The Norwegians have carried on. Um, and <coughs> there is uh, progress, albeit slow, in the USA, in Canada, uh, China, and so on. Um, but in terms of uh, scale, we're talking around about 5 million tonnes of CO2 uh, stored per year. And that's just a fraction of a percent of the amount we liberate into the atmosphere and although in 2008 2009 uh, the world used less electricity less power uh, we're back on trend we, we are um, i think someone calculated we're using fossil fuels at the rate of about 20 million years worth every year at the moment oh dear oh dear but what about ccs in the uk is there any sign that that is actually going to be revived that we yeah there is a there is a sign uh, and uh, the, I think the most advanced group at the moment are uh, the Teesside area. Not surprisingly, mm. uh, in the Teesside area, it's the biggest emitter of CO2 in the country. You can look at the national figures because of all the heavy industry there, you know, the derivatives of, of the old ICI and so on. Yeah. And so uh, they've been pushing at this without funding um, for 15 years or so now, They've got great support from their local MP, Simon Clark, um, and I think they will manage to do it. Of course, you know, the, whichever government's in power then will say, look, we told you so, you didn't need all the money. But the fact will be that they were 10 or 15 or 20 years behind where we should be. Mm. Because of the North Sea oil and gas province, we know the poor spaces. We know the system very well. We could have been selling storage space around the globe now and mm. earning from the revenue from that so you know there's a there's another way of looking at the um uh, at the whole economics the uk could have put itself in the uh, the driving seat uh, for um leading the world mm. what do we need to do to concentrate our uh, government's minds on this well honestly <laughs> <laughs> they did stop fussing about you know what uh, um, uh, and govern the country <laughs> yes. uh, I don't you know, don't press me anymore on this no, I may say no. something I would regret to be re recorded you know? <laughs> right. well a lot of things um, a lot of things have had less attention right across the political yes. spectrum than they ought to have done so yeah, uh, yeah. okay, okay. We, we, the, the UK remains um, in terms of natural resources a huge uh, uh, hugely beneficial. You know, there there are. You talked about uh, catch or sweeping CO two from the atmosphere, which will prove very difficult. But you also talked about using less. Mm -hmm. And the the elephant in the room in the UK, from the point of using uh, fossil fuels, is heat. Half of all the energy we use in the UK is to produce heat. Fifty five percent up in Thurso, forty five percent in Brighton. But on average. 50%. Nearly all of that heat is produced from burning gas on site in your home or burning gas at the power station to generate electricity. And yet, heat's something we could get so easily from the earth, yeah. from flooded coal mines that we've been working on, from uh, deep geothermal systems. You know, crew and the areas around Cheshire, Liverpool and Manchester could easily tap into uh, the resource base there. And our calculations suggest without ever putting cold water in the ground, which you would certainly do, so absolute minimum case, 
we can keep the UK warm for 100 years without burning that gas. Well, that's that's phenomenal, isn't it? That's uh... and that's that's where most of my effort is concentrated now. Yes. Now the, the CCS is um, is a technology we should use, but it's proved so difficult. Uh, I'm attacking the problem more directly in terms of decarbonising heat. Okay. Well, John, this is very useful, very interesting. Thank you very much for sharing okay. this with the listeners to the Sustainable Futures Report. I look forward to hearing it myself. Thank yes. you very much indeed. Professor John Lewis of Durham University. This week. This week, it's the UK government's Green GB Week. In fact, it ends today. I can't tell you a lot about it, as I only heard about it very recently. The tagline is Building the UK's Clean Future Together. And you can't argue with that. There have been events all over the country, mainly aimed at business and mainly sold out. There's advice to consumers on the website, the usual reducing food waste, getting a smart meter, carrying a reusable bottle or coffee cup and reducing energy use at home. There's a list of the top 10 actions to take. Interestingly, that includes understanding where your pension is invested. For communities, the main lead is to the Community Energy Hub. I have to admit that I hadn't heard of this, although I am involved in our local community energy group. If they make this an annual event and hold it again next year, I hope they give it a higher profile. What else has the government been doing this Green GB week following the publication of the IPCC report? Well, fracking has restarted in the north of England after seven years, despite being rejected by the local council and opposed by activists. Our Green government has overruled the council and sent some of the activists to prison. Fortunately, on Wednesday of this week, the appeal court found that the sentences were disproportionate and the protesters were released. There's another protest on Saturday, apparently. I do hope they won't be arrested again. Professor James Hansen, former director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York City and considered by many as the father of climate science, has written to UK Environment Minister Claire Perry warning that the decision to allow fracking was a serious policy error that would contribute to climate breakdown. So the UK joins Trump, ignores science, full throttle ahead with the worst fossil fuels, Hansen told the Observer. The science is crystal clear. We need to phase out fossil fuels, starting with the most damaging, the unconventional fossil fuels such as tar sands and fracking. Our government knows best. Also in Green GB Week, the government announced changes to the grants for electric cars. From the 9th of November 2018, consumers will see the grant for electric cars fall from £4,500 to £3,500. The grant for plug-in hybrids will be withdrawn altogether. The government announcement says that if this news leads to a surge in sales to beat the deadline, they'll bring the deadline forward. We ordered an electric car last month, but there is nothing in stock anywhere in the UK, so it has to be built to order. It won't arrive until December, by which time the changes will have taken effect. Eating meat is bad for the environment because the amount of nutrition that has to be fed to sheep and cattle is far in excess of the nutritional value of the meat. This is because these animals use their nutrition to produce bones and horns and leather and so on, none of which can be eaten. 
Raising livestock requires vast amounts of water. So all in all, if we continue to eat meat, we are going to be unable to feed the growing world population. Not to mention that ruminants such as cattle and sheep emit vast amounts of methane, that highly potent greenhouse gas. Asked if she would advise people to eat less meat, the same Claire Perry said that this would be the act of a nanny state and that people should make up their own minds. A letter to the I newspaper put it rather differently. A nanny state is when the government tells me what I should do for my own good. I do not consider it is a nanny state when government tells me what to do for the sake of all. In Germany, meat has been excluded from the meals served at official government functions in recognition of its unsustainability. This has not gone down well with some German politicians, notably the German Minister for Food. Let's leave the government for the moment and look into something else. You've probably got a smartphone, you may have a smart meter, you may have a smart car, you'll have heard about smart grids and smart appliances. Smart Cities World reports on smart sewers. This article is about Kansas City, where Special Assistant City Manager Andy Shively says a smart city starts eight feet below the ground and goes up from there. Kansas City is located in the geographic heart of America and boasts the world's largest smart sewer sensor network. It includes nearly 300 sensors deployed on the underside of rugged manhole covers across a vast 2,800-mile sewer pipe network covering 318 square miles. A real-time decision support system created by tech company Mnet will dynamically control the flow of water to help prevent combined sewage from entering the Missouri River. The system uses inline gates to maximise storage in the sewer system during heavy rains, much the same as smart traffic lights work during rush hour. The $1.2 million, that's £0.9 million, smart system will help prevent the construction of costly deep tunnels and pumping stations. We'll use what's already built to hold the flow, he said. The sensors act as a type of flow meter that works like sonar, measuring the flow and depth of the water in any given spot. Shively met Mnet five years ago after founder Louis Montestruc converted artificial intelligence technology that was originally used to help locate snipers firing on troops in combat and to track enemies in GPS-denied areas. It was based on collecting data from Internet of the Things devices, which were named SmartDust. The system is linked to the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration weather forecasts and has been highly successful in its first year. Which is just as well, as Kansas City is under the gun from the US Department of Environmental Protection to prevent combined sewer water and stormwater from entering the Missouri River. Talking of stormwater, every week I report on more extreme and life-threatening weather across the world. This week, lives lost in Wales, Portugal and France. Meanwhile, in Florida, 22 lives have been lost to Hurricane Michael. Lives were lost in Georgia as well, and whole cities razed to the ground. President Donald Trump spoke to CBS 60 Minutes about climate change. One of the things he said was, I'm not denying climate change, but it could very well go back. I think something's happening. Something's changing, and it'll change back again, he said. 
I don't think it's a hoax. I think there's probably a difference. But I don't know that it's man-made. I will say this. I don't want to give trillions and trillions of dollars. I don't want to lose millions and millions of jobs. An article in the New York Times analyzes each of his statements in detail. Find the link on the blog. That's at all the W's sustainablefutures.report. The winter's weather will test our national energy infrastructure once again. National Grid's latest winter outlook report is much more confident than in recent years. In March this year, National Grid was forced to issue a gas deficit warning for the first time in eight years after Europe was gripped by a cold snap dubbed the beast from the east and after several pieces of gas infrastructure suffered outages. National Grid is confident that there will be enough gas this time partly because Norway's new Hansteen field comes on stream shortly. But worryingly, it says, as global gas prices have risen, it is likely that coal will replace gas in the generation merit order for some of the winter. Staying with energy, here's news from Flamanville. You'll remember that that is the site in France where EDF is building a nuclear power station to the new design which will be used at Hinkley C in the UK. Like the Hinkley plant, Flamanville is way over budget and years behind schedule. There has been an ongoing investigation by the French Nuclear Inspectorate over concerns that the integrity of the steel in the reactor vessel is prejudiced by containing too much carbon. The inspectorate has now agreed that the reactor can be commissioned, but the lid must be replaced when the first fuel change occurs in 2024. I believe that this will require demolition of part of the reactor building, so expect a significant outage period and further increased costs. We are assured that lessons have been learned, so such issues will not affect Hinkley C. Scottish Power has put all its eggs in one energy basket. It is selling its hydro, pumped storage and gas generators to Drax and will supply only wind-generated electricity in future. I understand that BBC Radio 4's File on 4 a documentary series, presented a highly critical review of UK energy policy this week. I have yet to listen to it. Maybe something for next week's episode. In the US, the Juliana case rumbles on. This relates to a group of children suing the president and the government for allowing fossil fuel companies to produce products which emit harmful emissions and threaten their life chances. The latest ruling is that the president cannot be a party to the case, but the government is still in the frame and all efforts to have the case struck out have failed. Some of the children who started the case in 2015 are not children anymore. Didn't somebody once say that justice delayed is justice denied? And now a few final thoughts for this week. Apparently you can now pay for your parking in Leeds with plastic bottles. For every bottle you take back for recycling to City Park, you receive a 20 pence voucher. It costs £19.50 to park there for the whole day, so for that you will need about 95 bottles. Following up on the IPCC report and the Sustainable Development Goals, there is a chart on the back of the report which shows the potential trade-off between the mitigation options and the Sustainable Development Goals. The controversy over Walker's crisps being packaged in bags which can't be recycled. 
A firm in Worcester has developed a biodegradable crisp packet which can be composted and will disintegrate in six months. And that's it for another week. Thanks again to my patrons for their continuing support and thank you for listening. In addition to iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher, I'll also put this episode on SoundCloud. Not many hits there so far, but we'll see how it goes. And don't forget, links to the sources for all these stories are, as always, on the blog. That's sustainablefutures.report. I'm Anthony Day. And if you have ideas, questions or suggestions, please let me have them at mail at anthonyday.com. That's it for now. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you.